But at that precise instant, just below, an unfathomable fate brings a small private plane swooping out of a nearby cloud bank. The gigantic starship is totally invisible to it, but the earthly pilot has one soul fleeting second to stare in utter disbelief at the figure of a man zooming up towards him. Then, Baroom! Welcome to Artifacts of Infinity, where we dive into the infinite abyss of Marvel's cosmic universe. I'm Jonathan Hudson. I'm Everett Christensen. This is episode 3, and today we'll be covering Fantastic Four 64 and 65, also Marvel's superheroes 12 and 13. This episode covers the introduction of the Kree Empire with such characters as the Supreme Intelligence, Ronan the Accuser, and Captain Marvel. In the future, we'll be shifting our coverage away from introductions and we'll rotate as we cover major cosmic events, notable runs, and even deeper dives on individual characters. We won't be trying to cover everything in order of appearance. Let's dive right into the first issue. This is issue 64, The Century Sinister. This issue was written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Joe Sinnoh, lettered by Artie Simic, edited by Stan Lee, with cover art by Jack Kirby and Joe Sinnoh. And uh, as far as covers go, this is a classic. There's a hulking figure in the foreground, back to the camera, menacing our marvelous team, and with the heavy inks shadowing it, this character looks ominous. We open on Ben and Reed working in the lab, and this Kirby contraction on the page is just amazing. They're talking about making sure that the door to the negative zone is just uh, closed and secured, and we've got Reed talking, and Ben and Sue are complaining about all the work. Yeah, Reed and Sue are having a bit of an argument here, and... This is something we're going to see a few times, and it ends on a loving beat because Reed declares it's time for a vacation. We cut to a professor who is uh, with a guide, and they are searching for remnants of an alien civilization on a mysterious island. They're using a device that looks like a hand, like some kind of ancient artifact maybe, or or something like that and there's a cube in the middle in the palm of the hand and it lights up and shows them an underground Cree spaceport and something is lurking in the shadows of the spaceport the guide pulls out his gun and fires on something and it's Sentry 459 as it identifies itself and it immediately imprisons the pair in a shimmering mass of colloidal atoms. We shift over to Ben and Reed and Sue trying to figure out their vacation, and Ben blindfolds himself and throws a dart to determine the vacation destination. Uh, I wonder where they're going. <laughs> Nobody knows. No one knows. <laughs> Uh, but so the awakened sentry back on the island is setting up the, quote, unfailing vibroscreen. And we learn that the Cree eyesight either can go infrared or ultraviolet. 
But whichever direction it is, the human eye can't see it, so Ben, Reed, and Sue fly the pogo plane just smack into it. And we've got some really great Kirby Crackle art going on here with Reed looking panicked and Ben cradling Sue to protect her. And as Ben or yeah, as Ben and Reed kind of freak out about how they're gonna crash, Sue handles Bennis and uh, throws up a an invisible shield to cushion their way through all the vibrations. Now they're talking about how they're going to crash. But as they're coming in towards this gigantic figure on the beach, Sentry 459 just catches the plane right out of the air. He's he's an extremely menacing figure. I kind of love the way he keeps getting portrayed here. Like, he looks threatening and tough in every portrayal. It's, it's he, very cool. He really reminds me of... Uh, like an early sentinel design but he looks that... even more traditionally kirby due to the way his eyes have that like electronic readout on them that's exactly the impression i got was this was a more a more lovingly rendered uh sentinel as soon as the plane is caught the Fantastic Four leap into battle, Reed giving the Sentry one of his trademark hugs of horror, and they are, uh, they, Sentry is just gaining strength with each exchange and kind of casually tosses Ben into the ocean. Yeah, it's actually kind of intense. Ben looks like he's not able to handle it. And uh, we cut back to... Johnny and Crystal are getting some snuggling action in. It's their first time that they are alone. And they get interrupted with a communique from Sue asking for help. So back on the beach, the fight gets even more intense. When Sentry 459 punches a 100-foot tidal wave into existence. And that's really impressive. Thankfully, the human te torch teleports in at the last second and just sort of torches a giant trench into existence right in front of the tidal wave. He, he declaims that he's using beams of multiple laser intensity, which I really loved. I... I'm really impressed at the flexibility of Johnny here because he just, like, it, a 100-foot tidal wave would have so much, like, water behind it that to make a trench that deep, it's not surprising when he just accidentally punches his way into the island, down into the spaceport, and starts blowing the entire thing up. They manage to get down there and see what's going on as, as the thing falls inside, and they find the hapless professor and guide, and they manage to save them, and then they rapidly teleport out with Lockjaw, and... Uh, 
he's just the best boy. He's a good boy. I love Lockjaw so much. He is like one of my favorite Inhumans. I think he's like everyone's favorite Inhuman at this point. Uh, I just like can't get enough of giant doggo who teleports around. Yeah, he's pretty great. Um, and at the very end here, as the issue wraps up, we've got Century Four Five Nine standing at his post and making his final report, guarding his island and his spaceport until the bitter end. The next issue is Fantastic Four Sixty Five. From Beyond This Planet Earth. This issue was written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Joe Sano, lettered by Artie Simic, edited by Stan Lee, with cover art by Jack Kirby and Joe Sano. And this, in this cover, Ronan the Accuser brandishes his hammer, a universal weapon, and seemingly takes down three of the Fantastic Four, and... I just really want to point out Reed's expression here because he looks like he is having the worst day and his long floppy arms are just twisting and writhing in agony and the body horror just doesn't stop. It just does not stop on this. And you know what jumped out at me was kind of kind of a, a similar thing going on with the thing where it almost looks like he's crunching up in agony and and hollering out in pain with kind of blank eyes in you know from the pain it's it's a really intense uh fight going on and on the cover we have in classic lettering from the deadly lips of ronin i accuse <laughs> which i mean like that would cause me to buy a comic off a spinner rack if i saw this yeah there. that's a, that's a fantastic start and we turn the page, and we've got the amazing lettering from beyond this planet Earth. And some some more great Kirby Crackle. And we've got the Fantastic Four kind of hovering there. And they are being addressed in what they think is a dream. Now, here's where we meet, for the very first time, the Kree Supreme Intelligence, which is using its amazing psychic power to mind-probe the Fantastic Four from maybe even a galaxy away, and it determines that they're guilty of destroying the Earth outpost and the, its loyal sentry, and thus it releases them until the coming of Ronan the Accuser. There, there is one really cool image at the end that I love because it's just a really cool kind of perspective shot. And you've got the Fantastic Four's just legs and their feet and a bunch of like energy zooming away from them, like they're traveling or, or, or something like that. And that was just a really cool piece of you art. Know so this panel actually um, kind of gave me a bit of the uh, nightmare feeling where, or rather more like a night terror, where you feel like you're falling back into your yeah. own body and then you suddenly jolt yeah, away. Yeah, definitely. And uh, we then go to Ben and Johnny who are in the same bed? 
Yeah, I, I've got a lot of questions about this sequence. Like, so they wake up in the same bed and they're talking about their nightmare. Johnny draws a bath, but then he has to heat it with his own powers? Is there not hot water in the Baxter I like building? to think that Reed is just cheap and doesn't have a hot water plumb into his room because he can heat it himself. Reed. Uh, so Ben and Johnny check in with Reed and Sue, and they find out that they've had the same dream as well. And uh, meanwhile, while they're talking about that, Sue is also kind of complaining about being tired of the the superhero life. She says she wants supermarkets, not superheroes. And uh, she's just fed up with all the nonsense that they go through. And, and Reed is particularly terrible and particularly just rude to her no i i like i cannot stand this exchange like so they just had a fight last issue and in this one they're getting into another fight and reed just grabs her and forcefully pulls her close to him and he's like oh i'll be better let me buy you anything you want and he ends it with this line wives should be kissed and not heard and i understand on some levels this comic is from a different time but i just i i am not a fan of reed performing what to me looks like the abusive spouse playbook like, this just looks textbook. To yeah, I, as a married man, none of this would fly with my wife at all, even a little. It's it's shocking that their marriage survives. Thankfully, though, we are immediately cut out of that dicey exchange, and we're in space where we meet Ronan, the public accuser, for the first time, and... This really begs the question, do Cree have private accusers? Uh, you know, can can Jessica Jones get her private accuser license? The world may never know, but it should. Are they are they like lawyers or are they like investigators? I just can't tell. The Cree justice system is weird, that's for sure. But uh Ronan teleports to New York. And he shields himself with an aura of negativism, which, you know, surrounds our White House currently. And stealthily (laughs) observes humanity. And uh, judging us, no longer are they mindless savages. They appear to be in the secondary stage of racial advancement. Their sociological structure is still economically oriented. And their scientific advances have far outdistanced their moral and spiritual concepts. In short, they are at the intermediate stage of social development. Though learning to master their physical world, they are still sorely beset by greed, hatred, fear, and other viruses of the spirit. Now, meanwhile, Johnny picks up Crystal in his hot rod, and there's a really great exchange in here where... Johnny is talking about how 
traveling in a stripped down hot rod is like a sonnet and crystals like every moment with you is a sonnet and i think that's just like super cute and i actually like them a lot together in this era and i don't know why she ends up marrying quicksilver but hopefully we'll figure that out someday uh yeah they're a great couple yeah they just seem to work really well right here um and reed takes sue to the most expensive restaurant in town and he keeps calling her young lady in a really condescending fashion. And once again, I am kind of weirded out by this. Yeah. At the same time, Ben signs for a package at the Baxter building. And I love that the mailman is just absolutely fed up with the shenaniganery around the Fantastic Four. But suddenly there's a fizz and Ben disappears. And in fact... All four of them disappear, and they are pulled from wherever they were, and they are trapped in a cone of impenetrability before Ronan, the public accuser. I feel like we need, like, the the dun-dun. Right? How we say that. <laughs> I would love to see Cree Law and Order episodes. They sound right? like they would be action-packed it would be wild <laughs> but uh ben immediately moves to strike ronan who uses his universal weapon to exert an increasingly crushing pressure upon the thing yeah each member attempts to assault ronan except for sue who's the only one who could just give him all right uh and in turn they are all defeated Ronan demonstrates how superior he is over them by changing them into their costumes, and then he judges them all guilty. But bit by bit, Ben continues to advance through sheer force of will. I kind of thought it was silly that he demonstrates his superiority by changing their costumes when he was demonstrating his superiority by whooping the tar out of them. I'm not, I, I'm not entirely clear on the why here, I feel like this whole fight could have just been done in civvies and it would have had more impact. Yeah, but, you know, choices were made. But uh, outside the cone, the police use a blaster designed by Reed uh, to try to, to open it up, but it does nothing. Uh, this is interesting because we really don't see Marvel police using Kirby weaponry all that often. Um, but they even throw out that uh, Tony Stark can't figure out the cone of impenetrable shame. Yeah, it. they are stuck in the shame cone. It's pretty bad. <laughs> Inside, though, uh, Sue has made the encroaching Ben invisible. Now, I don't understand how Ronan got so distracted that he missed a rock monster, uh, but... Ben, while invisible, grabs a hold of Ronan and delivers a sweet suplex as the other three just all unleash their powers on Ronan, who declares, Never has a people's accuser failed to execute a sentence. Which brings up another question. If he's the people's accuser, does that mean the defense gets an accuser? How does this work? They just show up and take turns suplexing each other. Who gives up first when loses? You know, from everything I've seen from the Kree, that, that is 
far from the most outrageous possibility. <laughs> Reed and Ben do force Ronan to uh, turn the hammer on himself, and Ronan, the public accuser, vanishes. And so we see at the end of the episode, Reed is uh, mostly mulling over to himself. What does matter is the Kree now know they are dealing with an intelligent and a fighting race, and I pray such knowledge will keep them from ever returning. So, of course... This is Marvel Superheroes, issue 12, The Coming of Captain Marvel. This issue was written by Stan Lee, penciled by Gene Colan, inked by Frank Jacoya, lettered by Artie Simic, colored by Stan Goldberg, edited by Stan Lee, with cover art by Gene Colan, Frank Jacoya, Stan Goldberg, and Artie Simic. So on this cover, we see Captain Marvel in what we will un come to understand as the standard Kree military uniform while a small crowd of people like point and gawk at him from behind as he strides forward a brave spaceman and we open on the captain being ordered into his battle suit to receive a breathing potion from the medic una who we quickly learn is the object of affection for not only captain marvel but for colonel yon rog marvel as his Marvel, excuse me, as his lover is being sent on a suicide mission. And we learn from inside the Kree spaceship that the potion lets Mar breathe on Earth for 60 minutes without his protective helmet. And this confused me a lot. Uh, in the modern era, Kree don't seem to need breathing potions or anything else to breathe Earth's atmosphere. In a teary goodbye, the captain swears to return to Una before leaping out of the spaceship with his air jet belt. And this panel is awesome as Mar leaps out like a gymnast. So Mar begins monologuing to himself that since the pull of gravity is far stronger in the Kree galaxy than it is on Earth, my freedom of movement and sheer physical power will be many times greater than any ordinary Earthling here on this light-gravity world, but that's only so long as I continue to wear my protective helmet and battle suit. I don't really know why his strength had decreased from exposure to the atmosphere. If he's from a higher-gravity world, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't he be doing better off? Yeah, so, and, and this is also interesting because, like, more modernly, we understand that Kree are, in average, about twice as strong as uh, humans are, just, like, naturally, because they come from a, a larger, higher-gravity world. Uh, really only, like, time and basically, um, like, muscle degradation, atrophy, really, would sap him of his strength, so I'm not really sure what's going on here. But the uh, captain finds himself on a military testing base where the radiation from his suit is so strong that it interferes with the guidance system of a missile, which... Yeah, is you've worked on 
like missiles. Is this likely at all? I, I can't imagine how this would affect anything, honestly. Um, I'd be more worried about anybody nearby. Yeah, it, it it seems like his suit might just be dangerous to just like people. It's dangerous to everybody. Yeah. But uh, the base guards scramble to capture him. He is setting off some radiation alerts, and they manage to spot him. And he uses his universal beam to blind the guards with dark light and mentions that it's apparently the galaxy's most common all-purpose weapon. That's a pretty dope weapon for everybody to be having. And uh, after escaping, he goes and gets a hotel. And uh, he is asked to sign the registry, so he notes that he Americanizes his name from Marvel to Marvel. And this is interesting because, like, he just landed on this planet. How much research did he do that he's just like, ah, yes, when people immigrate to America, they change their names to make them simpler? Look, Captain Marvell is quite the student. In the hotel room, from the ship, Colonel Yon Rog paralyzes one of Mar's arms and transports a wrist monitor on him, and apparently can only be removed by the colonel, and means that the captain can never be free. The Imperial Minister of the Supreme Intelligence then contacts the captain directly and informs him that he's been chosen for this task uh, that the Century and Ronin had failed to accomplish, though it's unclear what specific mission that is. And so Captain Marvell stands with the fate of Earth in his hands. And next up, we have Marvel Superheroes issue number 13, The Coming of Captain Marvel. Now, this issue was written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Gene Colan, inked by Paul Reinman, lettered by Sam Rosen, colored by Stan Goldberg, edited by Stan Lee, with cover art by Gene Colan. And it all comes together here. Century 459 is being blasted by Captain Marvel's Unibeam. It's a daring and kinetic cover with Mars' firing hand leaving a trail behind it and his jet belt having motion lines swooshing down from it to show his flight. And there is one thing that I wanted to mention right before this is apparently Roy Thomas actually had a lot of uh, influence in creating the look of Captain Marvel, and he was being passed a lot of jobs that Stan Lee was too busy to do, so he takes over on Captain Marvel pretty much from here on till, uh, for, like, about till Jim Starlin gets his hands on it. That's cool. Uh, this is a character I'm really excited to dig into, personally. Um, we go in with the Captain putting finishing touches on his Unibeam, he has converted it for convenience sake to be wrist-mounted. And he's uh, monologuing to himself about his oath to destroy the enemies of the Kree Empire. And he kind of implies that he regrets the fate that's about to befall Earth. 
Mar is hurrying out of the hotel in the middle of the night, and he's hoping to get more breathing potion from Una, his medic and lover. He contacts the spaceship, and while waiting, he tests out his unibeam, blowing up rocks and putting them together again in this really awesome sequence of showing that the unibeam can be used to put things back together just as well as it can blow them apart. It mentions using the magnetic particles in the rock, which makes me wonder, does it work on anything that way, or is it specifically because magnetism is involved? Well, magnetism is magic. This is well established. It, yes, that's true. Uh, just wait till we meet Magneto. <laughs> uh... So he notes how no other race than Kree has created a weapon of such awesome destructiveness. And there are two things that really stuck out to me here. One is that he says that this is the most common weapon in the universe, but he says that only the Kree make it. And then on the other side, the ultimate nullifier has already debuted by this point, and it can destroy whole systems in a microsecond, so I'm not really buying this speech. He buys into his own hype a little bit. But uh, as the ship approaches, Mar jetpacks up to it, and inside Una tries desperately to get the other Kree to see that Yon Rog is about to cause a laser cannon quote-unquote accident. But uh, Yon makes the men lock her inside her quarters so that no one's around for them to see his intentional accident uh, killing his subordinate. Uh, however, in a strange quirk of fate, a plane intercepts the destruct laser uh, aimed at uh, Mar at the very last second, saving him. Once the plane crashes to the ground, the captain rushes over to check on the pilot, who is seemingly dead, uh, and it is Walter Lawson, who is apparently a missile guidance system expert, and will now have his identity taken by Captain Marvel. It just stuck out to me that the, you could tell that this is not a, a Claremont character, Claremont story, because Claremont would have added a ton of tra a ton of backstory on. Uh, Mr. Lawson before killing him suddenly. Yeah, uh, Walter Lawson actually comes back, like, pretty modernly uh, in Marvel Knights. He's just kind of a throwaway villain scrounging up Kree tech. Um, so while he stayed dead for a really long time, no one really stays dead in Marvel, so... In the modern era, in theory, this guy's actually still out there scavenging alien technology. Huh. That's neat. So we then go to Una, the medic and mad chemist, and she uses knockout gas on the entire ship just to send Mar some more of the breathing potion. She is dedicated to protecting her lover, and you got to respect that. I really like Una in this, um, even though she kind of suffers a bit from being the girl, uh, she's still shown to be really capable in her field. I mean, 
knocking out an entire spaceship of people like just by being like oh let me mix this and mix that and yep pouring it right in the hvac system and here we go i don't know i just like her style just because you get damseled doesn't mean you can't fight back so the captain having received his breathing potion as walter lawson spends a week working for that same military base that he found himself on uh, and eventually is summoned into a high security area. And there we see the prone figure of Sentry 459, who has grown much larger since the last time we saw him, and meet, for the very first time, head of security, Carol Danvers. That's so exciting to see her show up. I mean, she will be Captain Marvel in the future, it is really interesting to see her as head of security on a military base in her civvies being a boss? Yeah. Seems and great, see, but confusing, yeah. but great? I didn't know she went back this far. I first met her in the X-Men, and so it was really cool when I page-turned and saw her here. I was like, oh, holy cow, that's Carol Danvers. That's awesome. Now, so, uh, Walter Lawson is supposed to be a robotics expert, so he's playing along, but Carol instantly suspects him of something. But we get Century 459. He has been growing and replicating parts and self-repairing after the explosion at the spaceport. Yon Rog activates the Century and begins destroying the base, heading for the nuclear weapons. So the old man, who's been referenced off-panel a bunch, but we've never seen him before, uh, actually just is immediately getting on the phone in response to the emergency, and he tracks down and calls Walter Lawson. And, but it's Captain Marvel who heeds the call and he rushes to the base to save whomever he can meanwhile yon rog has pulled una in to watch the demise of captain marvel it's a cruel and heartless move to be sure but he is so confident that the century is going to kill the captain that he wants her to see the demise and so captain marvel approaches century 459 who He's thinking to himself that it can only follow its orders to destroy potential enemies. So he thinks to himself, when it realizes that I have come to stop its rampage, will we meet as friends or as deadly foes? And then the caption in the bottom corner of the panel for the next uh, issue just says, foes. <laughs> Which I just like, it's so good. It's yeah. so good. Stanley really has a fantastic sense of flourish for this kind of stuff. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed these issues and enjoy the uh, introduction of the Kree. And they're just so different from the modern way in which they get depicted. Um, even like Ronan the Accuser is shown as being a pink Cree, 
in his first appearance, even though, like, traditionally he's a blue Cree. Uh, there's Cree on Cree racism, and I always was like, why is that even a thing? But, like, here we just see the Cree as being looking, like, very, very human, when the longer time goes on, the more they appear to be, like, really alien. I just was really enjoying more than anything, particularly in the Marvel superheroes issues. The the art is incredibly fun to read. The it it does a great job telling the story. The fights are thrilling to read, and it's just extremely enjoyable. Yeah, I I have to say that. Um... I really like Mar. You know, I, I wasn't um I wasn't expecting it. Uh because he's so I, I get I guess I understand Captain uh Marvel more from his like seventies stuff, not from this which is still happening in the in the sixties, where he's, you know, this blonde haired, blue eyed Superman XP. But here as this white-haired, grizzled Cree soldier, he has just this kind of unmistakable charm that uh, is really drawing me in. Heavily agree. Well, if you want to read the issues we've covered today, you can always find them collected in Essential Fantastic Four Volume 4, Marvel Masterwork Fantastic Four Volume 7, Fantastic Four Epic Collections Volume 4, Fantastic Four Omnibus Volume 3, Essential Captain Marvel Volume 1, and Marvel Masterworks Captain Marvel Volume 1, as well as digitally on Comixology and Marvel Unlimited, or ask your local library. Now, if you would like to know more about the Kree, uh, very recently the Inhumans-centered... Uh, Royals uh, comic did a good job of discussing their past and how ancient gigantic races have been fiddling with Kree DNA for a very long time. Uh, but there was also Annihilation Conquest, where the Phalanx has taken over the Kree Empire, and that kind of showed more of the Kree like day to day life of the Kree. Um, and Historically, though, there's all of the volumes of Captain Marvel, although the Peter David volume of Captain Marvel is extremely your mileage may vary. Um, and, of course, there's the Kree Scroll War that uh, takes place mostly in Avengers that is probably one of the biggest, most Kree-focused and centric cosmic plots uh, that happens nearer to this era. If sacred places are spared the ravages of war, then make all places sacred. And if the holy people are to be kept harmless from war, then make all peoples holy. This has been Artifacts of Infinity. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Everett. And this was edited by Chris. We will see you in the infinite cosmos.